Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 122 of the Quickie Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Happy Monday. We're back into it. Hope you've got a sweet week planned. But first, how was your weekend? Mine was pretty fun. Had my son's eighth birthday, and we sort of play these minute-to-win-it games, and uh, the adults get super competitive, kids get right into it, and in the end, they get to pick like random prizes out of a bag that they can't see into. Um, it was super fun. A lot of funny things happened there. Um, but you're not here for that. You're here to hear from our guest today. Today's guest is Ben Crick. He's the creative director at Collins, currently in the San Francisco office. During this episode, we talk about how he moved around and bounced around trying to find a place to settle, originally from Australia, a little stint in Canada, then New York, then San Francisco. We talk about the moment that design clicked for him and what it caused him to look back on. We talk a lot about uh, a little behind the scenes at Collins, and we get into lots of stories about the Spotify rebrand that Ben was a part of. And he tells us why it was such an influential project for him to work on in his career. Ben tells us why he feels that designers love print. And he tells us a really um, sort of honest story about the challenging moment that he faced in his design career where he had to, had to acknowledge um, you know, a door, a design door that had opened And uh, he really had to let go of what he had thought success was. He talks about that. We also get into the huge opportunity for designers right now and moving forward and so much more. Ladies and gentlemen, my wonderful guest for today, Mr. Ben Crick. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field, and we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a Quickie? Good morning, Ben. How are you this morning? Good morning. I'm fine. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. I'm excited to chat. My pleasure. I'm slightly terrified to chat, but let's go and we'll Excellent. see what that's, happens. That's right where I want my guests to start. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, I first have to ask, are you ready for a quickie? Yes, I guess so. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. And I'm going to start with the, uh, you know, the tough stuff. Briefly okay. tell the listeners about yourself. Uh, my name's Ben Crick. I am creative director of uh, Collins, uh, specifically the San Francisco office. Um, I am originally Australian. I moved, I worked for a company called Maud in Australia, which was, um, one of my first, uh, design jobs. Mm -hmm. And then I moved from Australia to New York, lived there for about seven years, uh, moved to San Francisco, uh, and I've been here now for about a year and a half running the San Francisco, joining the design team in the San Francisco Collins office. Nicely done. So when you made the move from Australia to New York, did you have a job or was that a hope and a whim and just wanted to see what it was like? Absolutely not. I had uh, I had this one thought rattling around in my head, which was that I, my parents are originally English and they moved to Australia. So I never felt 100% Australian. Okay. 
even though my family is, you know, very Australian and I don't sound very Australian even now. Um, but I, I always had this thought that I didn't like the idea that you live somewhere just because you're born there. You didn't make a choice. You just kind of grew up there and everyone's so patriotic about where they live. But I felt like you, I didn't deserve that unless I had chosen it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I kind of, I mean, as well, there's a whole bunch of other factors. I think, um, there's incredible design studios in Australia, but the design market in Australia really only serves Australia. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about big companies, they tend to be, um, like satellite offices that are only focused on the Australian market. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know the, the two parts of it was, I want to go choose to live somewhere. And then wherever I go from that point onwards, I've made a choice, whether it's come home, whether it's go somewhere else. And so I kind of liked that idea. And then the second part was just like, um, I wanted to get a sense for what it was like to work in a much bigger, you know, what, what are the big leagues like basically? Mm-hmm. Um, I absolutely loved my job in Australia and actually the hardest thing about leaving was leaving a job that I had no problems with and I Mm -hmm. probably would still be working there today uh, if I hadn't left. But um, yeah, beyond that, I just packed everything up. Uh, I had a girlfriend at the time. We got rid of our car. We got rid of our house. We packed everything we owned into a shipping container. We put our cat on the plane (laughs) and we flew to New York and neither of us had a job. Neither of us had any idea where we were going to get a job. We had just got a six-month holiday visa and we were going to figure it out once we landed. Nice. And uh, it worked. So, you know, probably one of the stupidest slash bravest things I've done. You know, I think that kind of idiom is true that bravery and stupidity really just depends on the outcome. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So true. It worked out for me. So it was good. But I, I had some back pocket plans. My because my parents are English, I have an English passport, so I could have gone to um, you know London or anywhere in the UK at the time until they kind of messed that up for me. Um, but I don't know. America seemed like the harder option, and New York specifically felt like it was kind of the center of the universe mm-hmm. culturally, in a lot of ways. And you know, I think New York just has like a fantastic PR like uh, unintentional PR around it, this idea you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. You know, it's it's the backgra- backdrop to like movies and TV that you're kind of constantly peppered with. So I just kind of wanted to check that out really. Okay. So when, now I've been to New York once with my wife and we were there for about 10 days. And oh. I want to know if you had the same experience as we did. You know, you grow up watching movies about New York and, you know, watching TV shows about New York and you hear what are, you know, the stereotypical sounds of New York. And then as soon as those airport doors open and you step out and you're in New York air, it's like, it's identical. There's swearing, there's honking, there's yelling. There's like, and you're like, yeah. oh my God, we're here. Yeah, it's like, uh, I, I had the exactly, I still have it now, this sense of deja vu walking around the city and I would see things and be like, oh, I feel like I've been here before. And it's because you've you know, absorbed so much kind of culture through different mediums that mm-hmm. feature New York that you constantly, like I, I, I felt like there were people behind every kind of street corner yelling action <laughs> and stuff would kind of take place in front of me. And I would be like, this feels like a movie. You know, Australia is, I don't know, there's not many cities in the world that have the same energy and the same kind of street culture as New York. Energy, you nailed it there. Yeah, and it's uh, it's intoxicating in its own way, but it's also an exhausting city to live in. I'll yes. tell you that. <laughs> I can imagine that. It's not one that I would want to live in full time, but I'd love to have a place there where I could go and just spend some time there from every, every once in a while. Yeah. So you had mentioned a little bit about this, but I'm going to talk about it more. Um, 
your childhood. What was mm. your childhood like? Do you feel that you had a creative childhood that sort of pointed you in this career path? Yeah. I don't know. So, so strangely, I, I, it's really strange. Looking back, I think I did. In the moment, I was completely unaware. And I don't think that it was creative in the way that most people, you know, I never had like artists for parents or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, but my family has a history of design in it, like in various avenues, like my, um, my grandfather was an industrial designer and then spent much of his life teaching design. Although that never really entered my mind as a kid, he was just kind of an imaginative person and still is. Um, my uncle is also an industrial designer. My father designs programs for computers. Um, uh, and my auntie is, uh, works in post-production and VFX as well as graphic design. Um, but none of this ever really like, it was never like, that's what I want to do, or no one was telling me that I had to do that. And actually, mm-hmm. in school, I kind of, you know, you you focus on math and science. And uh, by the time I ended school, I basically, design was a, was a very, um, it's like a kind of a joke of a class. I did it, and I really enjoyed it, but it's not serious. It's not treated seriously in the way anything else is. Totally. Um, so I came out of school, and I was really good at economics, strangely. Economics and design were my best subjects. Um, and English, I was pretty good at that too. Um, and I thought I was going to become an economist. I had no idea what I wanted to do. That's part of the reason, um, we were talking about this before the podcast, but, um, why I went to Canada for a year and became a instructor and, and a snowboard instructor and just kind of, you know, <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I applied for a bunch of different courses. Um, I, I mostly economics courses and a couple design courses. And I ended up, um, through my auntie's recommendation, applying for, um, a good one in Australia, a design course, and I ended up getting into that. Mm. And then I had this kind of epiphany moment um, where I did like the first two weeks and I was like, oh my God, this is a job you can get paid to do this. You're, you're <laughs> creative and you're not, you know, all that. You know, I, I just couldn't believe it. And, you know, I kind of, I don't know, it like unlocked a weird door in my mind and all of a sudden I just had like motivation to do something and you can talk to my mother about this, but she's never seen me work harder than when I figured out what I wanted to do. <laughs> so that was the moment when it clicked for you, when you, that moment where it's, oh my God, you can get paid to do this? Yeah, 100%. living off of it. I could, I just like never, I don't know. I don't know if it was a failure of any of the school system or my parents. I don't think anyone failed. I was just really narrow-minded in mm-hmm. like thinking about what you could do. And I never really kind of thought about that as a career path or kind of assess the world and thought, oh, there's all these people making all these things and that could be me. You know, I think it's like the culture of 10 or 15 years ago. I feel like it's changing and evolving now. But 10 or 15 years ago, even like in most circles, it was academic. Yeah, it was your, you know, your science doctor, lawyer, like it was academic, Um, no engineer, things like that. So, you know, artist and creative was usually like, Ooh, are you sure? Like, yeah. Ooh, it's like you know. failed yeah. at the academic things. And that was your kind of plan B. Your fallback was like, to draw pictures. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The, now I say it with a point. Was. Now I say it with a point of pride. It's great. <laughs> what do you do? I draw pictures for a living. I mean, you know, that's what it really boils down to, but obviously there's a lot of complexity there. Of course. Of course. So was um, there, was there a moment in that space where, you felt that you started noticing design or was it after that click moment where it all clicked and came together? Did you then all of a sudden start seeing design everywhere? 
Yeah, well, so two things happened. Yes, one, uh, you know, my, my type design teacher um, said this, and I think it's entirely true. If you don't like someone, teach them what bad kerning is, because as soon as you notice it, you can't not notice it, and then mm-hmm. the entire world has changed forever. Um, and the second one is I started, as soon as I realized that, I started to look back on my life and realize how much the visuals had affected the decisions I had been making that I was just completely unaware of. Like I grew up as a skater and I always used to buy the wrong size board because I would buy it for the picture on the bottom even though it would be scratched (laughs) up straight away. So I'd always have the wrong kit because I was buying it for the graphics and not for the actual purpose that it was designed for. A ton of my music taste was defined by album covers. I'd go into the store and just pick up the coolest album cover and buy things and that was kind of um, part of it. So just like little moments like that where, I, you know, every now and then I'd remember something and then go, oh, yeah, that's left a really – that skateboard deck has left a really strong imprint on my mind in a way that I realize other people don't have that. You know, I would have friends who would just buy whatever or they'd just buy skinless, you know, decks that have like no graphics on the bottom because they're cheaper. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can't do that. No. Like, that's <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. But it was never thinking about it that way. So I – I often actually use that as a measure for work because a lot of what the work, especially in the, at the scale that Collins operates with a lot of our projects, you know, we're talking to a, not a design literate audience. We're talking to a mass market. Mm-hmm. And so that's how other people interact with design. And so I like to step myself back and try to remember that because, you know, we are so visually literate. We're able to judge and dissect things and understand, you know, tension and how two colors are creating a, you know, some kind of vibrating effect or something. But the average person just sees it completely from a gut reaction standpoint. Yes. And I think it's a really good ability to be able to step outside yourself and remind yourself what someone else would feel Mm -hmm. looking at this kind of work. So, yeah, having the ability to do that would is just incredible. Um, so during that phase where you started reflecting on your decisions that you had made and realizing that design had impacted those decisions, is there anything that stood out to you as maybe the most influential piece that you saw or influential piece you interacted with? In terms of looking back? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I don't know. I just remember skateboard decks, <laughs> <laughs> snowboards, that kind of thing. Things yeah. with graphics on. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Nothing. Nothing uh, super major. So, Not moving enough. through your career, then, do you think is there anything that stands out as maybe the most influential design of your life so far? Something you've seen or <laughs> okay, been a part that, of? that one. That one's pretty easy. That one's. Um, oh, okay. Well, that because that one's more career oriented, and that's honestly like reasonably recent. I um, working at Collins in New York. Um, we had Spotify come in as a client, and they were looking for a rebrand. And I was lucky enough to end up as the kind of lead designer on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, in many respects, formative for the way that I and uh, approach building big brands and I think has helped us as a company. I think one of the things that Collins has, um, I think what makes us special and what has helped us um, grow over the last couple of years uh, is our kind of unique, I think it's unique philosophy to how we build brands, complex brands. And part of that comes from Brian and part of that comes from uh, Leland, uh, who's now over at Chobani. Um, but it's it's about it's this idea of building systems and in many respects it's kind of an interesting confluence because I think it's where the side of my mind that was good at economics 
has been bent to be good at design, which is kind of, you know, economics is all about systems, understanding people, understanding behaviors and building uh, or understanding how systems can influence those behaviors and nudge mm-hmm. people in the right direction, right? Building a design system at, at scale is a very similar process. It's, you know, you're you're not, you can't control everything. In fact, we finished the design system for Spotify four years ago or five years ago, maybe. We've worked on them with different projects, but really the goal of the project is to build something for someone else to design from and to grow from there. Mm-hmm. And that has a whole other set of challenges around, you know, complexity, around flexibility for different or unforeseen circumstances, um, around, you know, unknown skill levels or people of varying skill levels interacting with the brand. Uh, you know, I could talk for hours and hours on that. But so that so that was a really interesting project because we got that one in. It was obviously super high visibility. Um, me and Christian Widlick, who was the designer with me on it, um, and Lee, who um, was creative director on the project at the time, um, we we kind of knew the gravity of the the thing, and and we basically just worked us <laughs> worked around the clock for months trying to figure out how to build a system for a music entertainment company that was a new kind of at that time still streaming. Mm-hmm. It was a new thing. Not a lot of people in America knew about it. We were trying to build a music brand and build something for a team. And in many respects, doing a lot of things that we didn't know how to do. And we were trying to figure out as we went. Um, but in the end, I think um, it came out pretty good. Uh, where they're still a client of ours. You know, we still talk to them and and we've done, I've done multiple projects with them around like entering new markets Um uh, designing their IPO launch event, entering Japan, um, and new artists, marketing, um, how to fit devices in all this kind of stuff. Anyway, the crazy thing with that one is the, I mean, one music is something that everyone loves. And so it's just delightful as a designer to work on something that is just net positive, I think in almost every way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the other part is just like, you know, I can't help but have a little bit of a smile when, you know, I get on a plane and I see someone open Spotify and there's just a tiny piece of work that I've done. And, it's, you know, <laughs> whether it's just the color, like, you know, we didn't get to, we didn't change the logo. We rearranged some elements and kind of tidied a few things up and we changed the color. But, you know, even things like, you know, we 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 customize the typeface and you see that in the app, the whole visual system when when people open things like discover all of this stuff. I think um, it's just really nice to be able to walk up to almost anyone and, you know, on their phone is a little piece of your work. I think that has its own kind of reward at scale. That's really lovely. And it's something that you can talk to your parents and even your grandparents about, and they kind Mm -hmm. of get it. So what a cool feeling that's been really influential and really pivoted my perspective of Mm -hmm. what design could do from being kind of focused on, you know, designing really beautiful, like, crafted business cards or posters i think that there's tons of people out there who are great at that mm-hmm. better than i am at that i think that where i kind of the lesson i learned from that is oh i can kind of think about this in terms of systems and try to build things at scale that that kind of grow and help bring design to a much larger audience that i mm-hmm. think a lot of designers avoid or don't want to interact with because because they're not because they're not visually literate and because the means the designer can't push the experimental side of themselves because their audience will you know, struggle to digest that kind of stuff. So got it. anyway, it's been really influential in a number of ways. One, it just got a piece of work out there into the world and has, um, brought notoriety to Collins and, um, f- to me for being part of it. And the second part is being a kind of 
proving ground for a style building a style of design at scale which is kind of building systems and how do you set other people up for success um, that part has also been really um, important and something that I and we as a company have built on over the last couple of years to yeah so well said and easy to see how that would be such an influential piece of your career so far well um, ben, I want to ask you about a, a designer or two, or even may, maybe some brands that you look up to and closely follow. And what is it about them that you like? Ooh. <laughs> See, this is where it gets hard because, you know, even though we're doing one thing, we look all over the place. I mean, brands. I don't know. This one's hard because the the cliches are cliches for a reason, but they're just good, you know. There's, no one's going to be surprised or fall off their chair at either of these, but I think Nike and Apple are such good examples of brands for different yep. reasons. I think Apple knows exactly who they are, and they are so good at executing on it. And I think mm-hmm. part of that is that they've just got a really talented in-house design. Through clearly respecting design, they've managed to gather a really talented um, in-house design team, and you know that is really a momentum game. Something else we've learned about branding is, you know, in order to have a good brand, you know, there's no PDF or guidelines that replaces three or four years of art school and like natural talent, mm-hmm. right? You can't mm-hmm. just read a PDF and suddenly be a great designer. Um, it helps and it provides guardrails and it does a whole bunch of other things like God, God's how you kind of interact with agencies, gives you something to point at and say, hey, that thing's wrong because look at this document. It's not my opinion, it's this document. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of benefits to it. But, you know, really strong brands are really built by talented in-house design teams. Yes. Um, and you can tell the companies that have those. Apple has a fantastic one because they clearly respect design. Lee has done a fantastic job at Chobani hiring a bunch of really talented designers and making design a value of the company. And you can see it now in the way their products show up. Mm-hmm. Totally different market, not trying to be kind of like super pristine and, and um, you know, tightly designed, but but still like re- just re- the sensibility. Everything's deliberate. Everything's well done, thought through. It's amazing. And then Nike, the same thing. I mean, Nike has a great design team, totally different to Apple, where Apple is like, this is who we are, and everything kind of fits in that box, and that's mm-hmm. perfect. You know what to expect, um, although they're breaking out of it a little bit now. Um, Nike, you know, they're in the fashion space, and they know that they have to, they have to, their, their world is based on novelty. So they have to keep coming up with new things to keep people interested. You know, in they're also innovation-led, so, you know, their design has to be innovative in the same way that their graphics are. But I mean, just in, at the end of the day, the, the number of ideas, the quality of the ideas and the execution that come out of there are just fantastic. So yeah, definitely. In terms true. of brands I would look up to, those two are just the best executed mainstream brands out there as far as I can think of right now. Definitely. And, you know, being on, you know, the consumer side of both of those companies, you know, there's a reason why I pick them over others. Mm-hmm. And it really stems down to the design and the experience. Yeah, and it flows through the whole brand, you know, not 100%. just the visual, the product, the, I mean, Nike's killing it with the shoes. I don't know what happened, that kind of, the kind of Virgil Abloh collaboration with the 10 has sparked this whole kind of vein of design where now everything, you can kind of see the construction in the way that it's, um, in the way that the product is kind of built uh, and it's, you know, they're off to the races with that. It feels like they have a really unique product style now too. So definitely very space age at the moment. I like it. <laughs> um, ben, I want to ask you a little bit about print and packaging and your experiences with that. Um, 
How have you utilized or Collins utilized print and packaging in with your clients or in your career? First, I'll just say, I think there's a, the, I've been trying to, in my mind, dissect why designers love print so much Mm -hmm. beyond kind of any other medium or expression of design. Mm -hmm. I think it's because inherently designers understand that the graphics, the, the impression of a design is more than the graphics, right? And anything printed has a physical experience as part of it. So the yes. process of selecting paper stocks, the weight, the finish, the different, you know, there's just so much more possibility for uh, expressing an idea beyond just the visuals. So that's totally. how you get these things that are like, you know, it's just sans serif left aligned to the top. And if that was a poster on a website, that would be boring. But in print, you have so many more options. You can emboss, you know, foil, spot uv neon you know different paper stocks there's so much potential to create design beyond just the way that you're setting the um, information Mm -hmm. i think it's kind of fascinating for all of us and it's the same for me i started out as a print designer i still love print and try to get my hands on it as much as possible you know the craft person inside me i mean the tension with working in a big studio is there's there's the kind of um meta goal of like setting up a you know doing this work at scale but that usually means that other people are executing and that's Mm -hmm. kind of dissatisfying as a craftsperson and so there's the other side of the spectrum which is like you know the reason i got into this and why i love doing it and still come to work every day is that i still love making things myself and kind of solving that little puzzle and feeling satisfied with the outcome so Mm -hmm. we try to do it we try to have a kind of balance i mean this is nothing new but we try to have a balance of big projects and small projects and we try to i try to kind of advocate for print as much as possible so um, we're doing a couple of print projects now i think every designer loves to do print puts their hand up for it so i like the um, way that you explain that actually you know the reason why designers love print i really like how you explain that oh thanks I've been um, thinking about it for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Since the beginning well, so of I, your career. The, the, the last thought I'll say on that, actually, because the last point is, I think one of the reasons, one of the other reasons that it's great is, is you know, you think about a website. A website is only there when you're looking at it, and then mm-hmm. it's gone. It's very ephemeral. Not only can you not touch it, but it's only... It, it only exists in your life when you're interacting with it directly. Mm-hmm. Things like books, posters, stuff like that, they become like little totems or ambient design. You can have a nice book and I'm, I'm as bad as anyone else. You know, I buy tons of design books and I probably read half of them. Mm-hmm. But you put them on your shelf, you put them, you know, at a place in your house as a point of pride and it becomes a little sculpture and it's kind of in the background um, and it's serving a purpose, not directly but it's it exists in a way that websites can't unless you're actively sitting there looking at a website using it and i think that's a really nice thing too is you're kind of making little art pieces and all designers like to think of themselves as artists definitely (laughs) artists with purpose definitely that makes sense artists with purpose um ben the next couple of questions i have for you take you down part of your career where you've likely made some mistakes learned some lessons and i want to pull those stories out of you and share those with the listeners Um, so first, what has been the most challenging time in your design career so far? Why was it challenging and how did you get through it? Mm. I think that that moment we were talking about, um, the most challenging part for me was I had a, I had in my head a idea of what kind of designer I was going to be. 
And that was going to be the same thing, like, you know, the, the, the kind of small shop making, you know, beautiful brands, great print design for kind of photographers, for, um, you know, local artists, for culturally led projects. I think that was kind of the dream that was, that was, you know, where I'd kind of see myself and I'm, and I might still kind of direct myself in that direction at some point, but I had that moment with Spotify where I was like, oh my God, there's, there's this other kind of underserved side of design that we're not, you know, a lot of big branding is really terrible. And why is that? Why can't anyone manage to make a brand at scale that actually is good? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there's some out there, but you know, and I, and you know, in trying to do that Spotify project and in subsequent projects after that, we started to come up with some techniques that kind of helped to solve that problem. And we saw some success in how that was working. And I was like, well, maybe, you know, there's this economic side of me and this kind of systemic side of me that allows me to solve this problem. Maybe that's a more, a more needed problem Mm -hmm. or a more unique problem. Um, and maybe I'm better suited to that. And so I kind of had this moment where I had to almost, there was a, there was a weird part where I had to almost let go of what I thought success looked like to, to acknowledge this kind of door that had opened that I was trying to avoid looking at because I didn't think that that was what, you know, I had, I had a certain notion of what success looked like based on kind of social media and based on kind of, you know, the design publications that are out there and things like that. Uh, and I, and I had this moment where I kind of sat down and reconsidered that and let go of my, my previously held notions of what success looked like and kind of saw this new opportunity. So Hmm. I think that was actually quite a hard thing to do. Um, but yeah, here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. I like that one. So that's basically, you know, a door opened and it forced you to change your perspective on what you had thought success was and maybe even the direction you were going. Totally. I mean, I, I just kind of decided, I was like, wow, I'm actually, I, I never thought about this. Again, it was similar to that university moment where I was like, I didn't know this was a thing. Mm-hmm. But now that I see it, what do I do with that information? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I can either kind of, uh, you know, I was like, I can either go back to trying to be this other thing, but there's so many design studios doing that. And they're all so fucking excellent. And and there's this other thing where I see a lot of design companies not doing a super great job at this thing. Um, and I see that I might have an opportunity to rethink how that might work or, or you know, you know, that seems like it might be new territory rather than well-trodden ground. Mm-hmm. And that was scary for me on a number of levels just because I didn't know what success looked like. You know, was I crazy and just like going down a totally stupid path? But um, I think... Yeah, that was, it's kind of like, you know, that, that idea of like open to, what is it? Open to, um, you have to be open to new opportunities, I suppose. And they never look like what you expect them to look like. Yes, that is so true. So yeah. true. Um, I want to go now to a specific design or a project that you are a part of that did not go well or bring the desired result. I want to know what that was like, how that felt. Can you take us to that story? Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to name any names. No, so I'll, don't. Try, I'll see yeah. if I can. Uh, I'll see if I can dance around it. But there's several projects that I've done actually where you know you do your best to help people understand the power of design, but at the very end of the day, and we have all sorts of things like strategy and all these. 
research, all you know, the competitive set, all this kind of stuff that we do to try to get outside of subjectivity and into some kind of objective measure of success and mm. also to create some kind of shared language of what success looks like, um, you know, through kind of mood boards and all of this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, some people just get it and some people don't. And I've had projects where we've done, you know, 12 directions for a client over the course of months and months and months. And in the end, nothing sticks. And, you know, I've had project, there's a project right now where I, I see it out there in the world and it's a kind of, you know, we finished the project, they decided that they were going to change a bunch of things. So it's still some of my works in there, but it's also kind of all mixed up with a bunch of other stuff that personally I think is less successful than what mm -hmm. we delivered. But, um, and that's always disappointing because you kind of like, you know, I thought we were onto a good thing and we had a great relationship with the client throughout the whole process. Mm -hmm. um, and in the end, it all just kind of fell apart or didn't come together, perhaps, uh, is probably a more apt um, explanation. You know, you're right by saying that that is a tough bridge to cross from subjectivity to objectivity. And, oh, yeah. you know, no matter how armed you are with the why, this makes yeah. sense it's you cannot turn off subjectivity yeah i mean and and i think it's i think in many respects it's a puzzle to be it's it's a problem that you need to run towards rather than try to completely divorce yourself of yes. so you do what you can to create objective measures of success and that will count in your favor but you're never going to convince someone who who hates the color pink to to launch a pink product Right. hundred percent. So on some level you have to be like, okay, here's a competitive set. Here's what, so when we worked on MailChimp, for example, um, and that was led by the former leader of this, um, office, Matt Luckers, and I kind of picked it up at the tail end, but, um, the, when defining a color for their brand, there were two things that went into it. It was on the one hand, it's a company about with a with a chimp for a logo which is like the most absurd thing and so we were like <laughs> well wouldn't it be hilarious if we made the color yellow that kind of fits the absurd um kind of qualities of their brand it feels like a kind of tongue-in-cheek thing to do and it's a little funny and they've always been a humorous brand and so yes. we we're like that's great it's yeah, the they're color definitely clever and then the other part is actually in their space there's no other company that uses yellow so it, it's a really differentiating color as well yes. and and the semiotics of yellow it's optimistic it's bright it's positive it's uh it's the most visible color uh in terms of you know in a busy environment yellow is the color that stands out against most other things so there's a bunch of practical reasons that help sell it there was an emotional reason and a conceptual reason that helped sell it as well and i think that's I think you need to do both, right? You need to understand the the business challenge that your client is facing and make your best argument and 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 solve that problem. But you also need to understand them as a person and whether that's through swipe or conversation or in, or you know inviting them into the process, understand their personal tastes and know that whatever you're launching is a representative of them in the world and so they're going to want it to feel like something that they value. Mm -hmm. So you have they're part of the puzzle too. The challenge, the challenge in big branding becomes when you have multiple stakeholders <laughs> and then you're trying to deal with the subjectivity of multiple individuals and that's yes. where it gets hairy, but definitely. No, I completely understand that one. Um, Ben, so what are you struggling with in your design career right now? Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it mostly goes back to, I think, well, two parts. It goes back to that that conversation we were just having where I I feel like a lot of designers 
like now that this door opened for me, right, this new opportunity of like, you know, brands at scale, so on, and the complexity of building a system for that. Um, I think that there's so much opportunity there and there's hardly any designers tackling that problem or interested in that problem. And I think there's so many, there's so many reasons for that. I think, you know, social media fetishizes posters and kind of, you know, you have people designing like CD and cassette tape covers on their Instagram things to try to get popularity, but they're not, you know, it's purely um, inward focusing. It's like navel gazing, right? There's so much kind of navel gazing in design right now. And I get a little frustrated that nobody is seeing the opportunity to actually have an, use design and all those skills to have an effect on the world. They'd rather design a bunch of things and show it to a bunch of other designers for internet points to kind of, you know, something i don't know mm-hmm. um i mean i do i don't I, I sound callous i understand that because i you know as a craftsperson there's a sense of um value and kind of like honestly just like joy in making those things that that is part of it but yeah and, and really it feels good too right it's a little yeah. ego boost like it, it feels good and helps you keep trugging forward totally and i'm i'm as much in that as anyone else i guess what I would hope is that people can kind of see that other side and take those skills and try to use them for, you know, this, you know, in the way that you see kind of, you know, when we talk about brands like Apple, why they're so valued is they took design and they made it mainstream. They made it, they made, and they used the design to make the world's, you know, most, in many respects, the world's most powerful technology company. Well, maybe not. Actually, that's not true. The world's most powerful hardware technology company, maybe. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's that. I, I think that's a big one for me. It's just like now that I've kind of seen that opportunity, I can't unsee it. And I wish other people would see it more because um, it's it just feels like there's so much opportunity there. And it will define the look, we, you know, it will define the look and feel of this next 10, 20 years is how well designers embrace this kind of challenge. Um, and then the other part of it is I think I just need we need people's help, to be honest with you. Like brands are more and more complex than they ever have been before what it means to be a brand now means reacting in real time managing multiple social media accounts creating um absurd amounts of content Mm -hmm. all of which has to be you know styled within a brand language because you know as consumers we're we're more and more design literate everyone's more and more design literate as things go which is great but it also puts the pressure on for brands to be constantly kind of designing and being aware of that the way they create things so you know, the problem is only getting more complex <laughs> and the world is getting more complex. Um, and so, you know, there's, uh, in, if we play this right as designers, there's a, there's an incredible opportunity for us to be kind of, um, recognized as an integral part of what it means to be a successful business these days. If mm-hmm. we kind of step up and grab that opportunity, you know, sure. when we, when we have meetings, we're talking to CEOs almost all of the time, which is insane. Um, I had another project recently where i got a hug from the ceo of the company in the meeting and you're kind of like wow this is wild like i'm a graphic designer i trained to do colors and i've got someone who's you know head of a multi-billion dollar company giving me a hug that's pretty insane so you know if anyone doubts the power that design can have on the world there's a little story for them (laughs) (laughs) if anyone doubts the power ben just got a hug (laughs) <laughs> yeah, nice. I love it. <laughs> All right, Ben, I'm going to turn this bus around. I want you to tell me about a project that you've been a part of that you are the most proud of. 
Uh, it's got to be. I mean, one, it's got to be Spotify just because it's been such a long relationship and it's so visible. And for all the reasons I said um, before, I think the other one is a, an odd one, but I'm really proud to have been a part of what I would consider Collins as a project that I have been involved in. Uh-huh. You know, I think the the path that we've taken as a company, and I've been here for seven years now, which is wild. I never thought I'd stick it in one job for that long, but you know, we there's been all of, all of these things that we've been talking about have been puzzles that the company has been grappling with, and at least in my corner of the company, I've been grappling with. And Brian, who's the founder, has been kind enough to give me the enough rope to and enough runway to kind of explore those things and to figure them out. Um, and it's been I don't know, it's been a wild journey, but it's been a really good one. And I think, you know, we've found a really interesting spot for ourselves as this kind of, you know, big, small design studio where we're mm-hmm. trying to tackle really big problems. We're still relatively small. We have a, um, you know, most of the designers here come from small studios and, and have that sense of like craft and quality and just like are unrelenting in the, in their desire to try to maintain that through the kind of you know, challenges of, of, um, creating something at scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I'm really proud of having been a part of that journey and having had my small part in influencing, um, influencing it and in getting to where it is. So nice. Really well said. Uh, All right, Ben, you've reached the point of the show for the ask it forward question. So I've mm-hmm. got a question for you for my last guest. And you okay, get the is opp- it what's my favorite color? Uh, no, it's a little bit uh, tougher than that, actually. And then you get the opportunity to ask a question of my next guest. I'm not going to okay. tell you who they are, but you can ask them anything. Okay, great. So first, my last guest was Mark Hurons from Blue Deer Design over in Surrey in the UK. Lovely. And he is also the host of the Creative Waffle podcast. Mm-hmm. So with the podcast title being the creative waffle, he wanted to ask you, what is your favorite waffle topping, Ben? Oh, damn. This one is easy. Okay. So there's a, um, oh, now I'm going to forget the name. I think it's called Waffles and Dingies in New York. There's a, <laughs> okay. there is a cart that parks outside. I mean, they park them a few different places, but there's one that parks right at the bottom, uh, the south east corner of central park in okay. new york and they do uh a standard belgian waffle sweet waffle and then you can get speckaloo spread which is like gingerbread this weird gingerbread paste so anyway and then they have speckaloo ice cream so i discovered this one day and so i go full speckaloo gingerbread waffle which sounds totally bizarre but it's utterly fantastic waffle Speckaloo spread, speckaloo ice cream, and then they put a little bit of caster sugar on top. I could eat myself into in a coma with those kind of <laughs> uh, with, with that waffle. It's fantastic. One of the biggest letdowns of moving to San Francisco is they don't have waffle and dingies uh, trucks. Oh, that's too bad. That's awesome. One. <laughs> I got to look for that now. Oh, yeah. Um, ben, what's the okay. question you'd like to ask the next guest? Damn, that's a good one. I, I wrote down two things. One of them was, what's your favorite color? And then I realized that that is a stupid question. I was just trying to make a joke. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's kind of like, you know, to repeat the question, you, it's almost like what, I guess, what's the biggest challenge facing the profession of design in the next 50 years? Mm -hmm. If I'm going to provoke people to, to, to try to solve this problem with me and with us, you know, I think that's a good one. What do we, what do we see coming down the line that we need to kind of, um, 
think about what's the biggest challenge in the next 50 years for design as a profession. Wow, heavy. So what is the biggest design challenge that designers will face in the next 50 years? Yeah, I hope you don't have an illustrator because that'll be they'll be like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Okay. And my backup question will be, what's your favorite color? Yeah, yeah. If that one fails, then the other one is just, what's your favorite color? (laughs) Perfect. Which is actually kind of a hard question, too, if you ask me. I don't know if I'd have an answer. Perfect. Um, Uh, Ben, you've reached the end of the Quickie Podcast, Ben. Thank you so much for being on the show today. We've made it. I really appreciate your time. Uh, It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode, everybody. And a couple of times in the interview, Ben had mentioned Lee. Uh, He was actually talking about Leland Mashmeyer, who was the co-founder of Collins back in the day. And I interviewed Leland for episode 50, and he really got into the Collins startup story, which is a really cool episode if you have not heard that yet. So head back and listen to that. Thanks again for listening. I will be back tomorrow with another great guest for you. Bye.